morning to our Poetryhood listeners. I am Farah Shamma and I am here at the studio at the Rove in Dubai. And with me in the studio, I have Nidal Murra. Welcome and good morning, Nidal. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And hello to all our listeners. I mainly have you with me in the studio uh, because you're a screenwriter. Um, but I know that you're not only a screenwriter. I've known you for a couple of years, more than a couple, I think. Um, and every time you surprise me with something that you do. And let me list a couple of things that I remember and I don't know much about, but I, I saw them in front of me in a way or another, or you told me about them. Um, something about salt crystals came up at some <laughs> point. You once invited me to, I think you were DJing, uh, you were making music on an island in Sharjah. Mm-hmm. You told me about it, that was years ago. And uh, you sent me a text that I can call poems uh, very easily, even though you doubted it. You said, I write something that looks like poetry. <laughs> um, you sent me a couple of those. Uh, you're also a film producer, a writer, and I think you can direct. Um, so I want you to tell our listeners more about maybe the salt crystals mm. <laughs> to start with. Okay. Um, and uh, an, uh, an introduction, who you are. That's always uh, the most difficult thing. I, I remember as far back as uh, introductions in school when we have to stand up and say our names and who we are. And w- the sentence that used to scare me a lot was a little bit about yourself. <laughs> because a little bit is never enough in a way. Uh, and about yourself, this is something that even past 30, I still don't know. (laughs) Um, But to bring it back to the salt crystals, uh, it's a story that started with uh, my father. The first time I ever went swimming in the sea, Uh, one of his ways of teaching me was to absolutely immerse me in the sea and hope that I find a way to swim. Now, at the time, I was uh, his only child, and I felt the responsibility of hope, even at that young age, and uh, all the things that I'm supposed to do and supposed to know. So I didn't want to say that I can't swim. I didn't want to show him that I was afraid, but the waves kind of took over, and I was underwater for a little bit of time. Uh, Now, of course, him being a good father took me out. He rescued me immediately. But in that moment, I vividly remember that it it felt like quite a long time. And I inhaled while I was underwater. So the water from the shores of Sharjah went all up in my sinuses. I swallowed a little bit of it, and it was overwhelmingly salty. Now, that kind of found its way in in my memory, and I guess because uh, I love him so much, I uh, turned it into a dormant memory. That's until I went back to the same beach later on in life as an adult, and that memory came rushing back. And the thing, the, the most visceral part of it was 
how surprisingly salty it was because it was my first conscious memory of the sea. That turned into my curiosity about salt coming from this specific part of the sea. And we all grow up with salt being part of our food and part of our life in many different ways. And it, I started to look at salt containers that we use at home, and it came from the Netherlands, and it came from different parts of the world, the Himalayas, but there wasn't salt from here, from UAE, and specifically from Sharjah, at least not table salt. Uh, I'm sure that there's a couple of places that uh, create salt for um, construction purposes, I guess, and other uh, chemical ways of using it in industry. So I had to change that uh, just for myself. So I collected about 40 liters of uh, water. I tried to go as far away from the shore as possible so I don't pick up any sand. Uh, and then using only the sun, I created a few salt beds uh, in my parents' house where we have a little bit of a yard outside. And over the course of uh, six to seven days, I would harvest from uh, the salt uh, pans that I created until I had about, I think, a little bit over a kilo of uh, Emirati salt <laughs> from Sharjah. And that was the salt crystals. Yeah, yeah. And you took pictures of them. Uh, and that's how I know about mm. them, I think. Um, My wife, Farah Sharif, took pictures. Yeah, yeah, Farah Sharif took pictures of them. And Farah Sharif is with us in the studio taking pictures. <laughs> um, and of course, as usual, Jamil Adas is with us in the studio, the man behind the poetry hood, the man who always makes this happen. I go to him and say, I want to speak to a screenwriter. And he says, OK, we'll make it happen. So he's with us uh, in the studio. All right. Um, when I visited uh, your place uh, a couple of weeks ago um, and I described my visit to a friend, uh, I said, everything I saw, I tasted, I felt was very poetic. That's how I described my visit. Oh, thank you. Uh, the details in the house, um, the music that was playing, the food that you cooked, uh, the conversations that the three of us had, the smells, the soap in the bathroom, um, I was very uh, happy with every detail, the sunlight, uh, and it kept a very nice aftertaste. And I think this is what made me want to talk to you. Uh, this, this is the moment I said, I want to talk to him. Um, and happily, Farah is with us too in the studio. Um, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means to feel that some things are poetic, because I myself find it difficult to define poetry. And I always tell myself, what is this thing that I found myself doing? Um, and I always describe it as the essence of all things. Uh, and I don't always see it as verbal. Using words to describe the essence, that's poetry to me. And do you have thoughts on that? What do you think is poetic? I have many thoughts, yeah. And as with most of my thoughts, you said earlier that what do you call yourself and how, how do you see yourself? I keep a lot of those in because definition 
and specifically meaning, I think is always fluid. And I think even saying verbal about poetry, I've thought about that a lot, and I don't have a real answer. As with many things, I don't frequently arrive at an answer, and I spend most of the time in the question. Poetry, uh, the reason I don't call myself a poet is because of this. Many factors come into it, such as my output, uh, the frequency of it, the quality of it, the verbal use of expression. So that's what keeps me from, from doing that. But I would look a little bigger than poetry. I would look at expression as a whole and the artistic endeavor. Uh, I don't say I'm a screenwriter. I don't say I'm an artist or a poet. Not because I see myself above them, but the closer we get to mastery in each of these fields, the more frightening it becomes for me to even claim to be in this field. Artistic living or poetic living is the thing that can happen by itself as a product of being aware and consciously approaching every moment in life. Uh, it sounds kind of meditative, mm -hmm. but I'm the furthest away from a meditative person. I think it comes down to just choosing and making choices. Uh, the choices reflect in the environment and reflect in behavior. So what you were saying about the smells and the sounds and, and sunlight. The sunlight was an actual choice. The reason we chose this house is because it was facing towards northwest. And when we came in, uh, I realized that the sun is not going to come up into the house. But at the end of the day, it will fill the house, whether it's winter or summer. So rather than what the community is like or how big the space is, it was the dynamic of sunlight in the house that led us uh, to choose it. So I was surprised when you <laughs> not only noticed but enjoyed that. But that's what I mean by choice and artistic living. I wasn't thinking at the time that as an artist I will make this choice, but I had something inside me calling to be aware of where the sun is in relation to us. So that's one example. I always try to define poetry during episodes. Um, I think in this conversation I see it as um, attention to detail and beauty. And you sent me a, a poem of John Keats uh, this morning. And, uh, you know, the search for beauty, for example, was, um, was one of John Keats' main goals when writing. He's a romantic poet, uh, the second part of um, the romantic poets. I mean, when I read a good poem, I usually feel that this poem is, pays attention to little details. This is a good poem to me. When I read the text and I go like, hmm, it was very well written. And it might be about topics that I've read about before, 
But what makes uh, a love poem more interesting um, than another love poem or that speaks more to me in that moment more than another one, it's attention to different details. Uh, the details that work and that are synchronized with me the moment I read. Um, and it's the poet himself or herself paying attention to certain details uh, that I hadn't paid attention to before or that other poets that I had read for haven't paid attention to. And I feel this is what, um, what I felt. I felt detail immediately in the space I was in when I was with you. I felt detail even in the conversations. And it's about uh, being concise and using words, having a closer relationships to words. Uh, because we all speak, we all, everyone speaks language. Language is accessible, but it's how, how we pay attention to language as well, how we pay attention to the words themselves. Uh, why would I say, you know, warm? What, what warm makes me feel, for example? So just paying attention to it, not taking it for granted. And I think this is um, this is what I felt. I'm trying to think out loud as as we speak. If we're trying to do definitions, uh, let's check that box. I can say with a, a degree of certainty that poetry is unbounded expression with conscious choice. So unbounded expression takes precedence. Uh, we don't filter. We don't try to make, we don't aim for a goal. It is unbounded and it is expressive. That doesn't mean it's not descriptive, but in the description, I am expressing something. And that ties in to detail uh, completely. Uh, taking, taking a specific image, let's call it, a landscape image. Uh, our vision is degrees wise around 120 degrees. So we can see quite a bit of this beautiful landscape. To express without boundary this landscape comes from a feedback. The input goes in, visual cortex creates a feeling inside this feeling must be understood, whether we think in words or we think in images, and must come back out. It doesn't have to come back out in the moment. It is an eventuality, mm -hmm. because we are somehow uh, a collection and uh, a reduction of every single experience we've gone through. What good are those kept inside and unexpressed. And if I take this a little bit further, I have some beliefs, and one of those beliefs that frequently guides me is we are here, literally, right this moment, and in the bigger picture, to express ourselves, to communicate with each other. The why and the purpose uh, is, is an infinitely deep place that we can spend hours and days and we have spent lifetimes uh, figuring out. But just like the 120 degrees of our vision, we are also limited 
in the time that we have in life, whether it's moments or sometimes a century. This is a sliver of all existence. It's, it's a, a mere moment in cosmic time. Through expression, we share, unbounded expression, we share the culmination of this experience. Uh, by sharing our personal experience, a bit of your truth, a bit of mine, a bit of his and a bit of hers, lead to a more high fidelity image of what truth as a whole is. That's why we, I believe, we do it unbounded. And by focusing to bring it back on detail and giving our attention to a specific thing, whether we are passionate about it or merely because we have access to it, now we're expanding the circle of truth further and further. But do you feel this applies more to, um, to film? I mean, I, I want to talk to you about screenwriting mm. and the process of writing something while knowing that it will become image. Usually I rely on words uh, inspiring images. I don't think of an image. I just know that the, the words will do that. The words will take care of it. Mm. But a screenwriter is writing words and dialogue or you know, internal monologue um, while having an image of a character and a scene. Um, and I only read one of your um, um, scr scripts. That's the word. I was going to say screenwriting text. <laughs> Screenplays. Like Screenplay yeah. or script. Um, the one uh, with the two frogs. A kind of arrangement. A yeah. kind of arrangement yeah. that I really enjoyed. Thank and you. I read it last night. And I saw it. But I also, as a reader, imagined, did he film it? Mm. Is it filmed? Mm -hmm. uh, what does it look like it, it does in my head? Or is it going to look different? And I think this is what is this comparison between writing just for writing, but then writing with a possible um, intention to create a movie, a short movie, or maybe even a series of images, which is what film is, I guess, videos. Yeah, uh, you can see I'm not uh, that uh, well-versed, uh, but that's why you're here. And I want you to tell our listeners who are not uh, very familiar with screenwriting, uh, listeners that maybe write poetry or, or write prose, fiction, tell them a little bit about the process, mm. the, the screenwriting process. Okay, uh, I'd like to go on a few tangents before we go into process, if, uh, if you would kindly allow me to. Of course. And uh, as a preface, I would just like to say I'm taking notes as we're going because... Uh, Late in life, I was diagnosed with ADHD, and that means uh, one of the things that is a little bit difficult for me is retaining short-term uh, memory, information in my RAM, basically. So I take the note so that I know I have to come back to it. Uh, you said a couple of things that triggered thoughts in my mind, writing just for writing. It's an interesting thought. I don't think I do that. I don't think I write just to write. Writing is one of the ways where 
because my skill set has to do with using language to communicate, that's where that unbounded expression finds itself. Uh, I think we are all capable of expressing ourselves in multiple uh, media, even using our bodies. So dance, for instance, whether or not you are schooled or taught in dance, the movement of the body is a form of expression. And arguably, the purest form of expression, because it's the thing that we come with first. Before language, before anything, we have the body. And in our formative years, all we are doing is learning how to use our neurons and impulses to control this meat machine that we inhabit. And later on, when we pick up language, some of us discover that uh, this is the medium that I will use. And it comes down to uh, not only nature, but the experiences that we have in life and what we are taught. Process is a, is a discovered and taught thing. And process differs for every single person who writes. The interesting thing between uh, the difference between poetry and screenwriting, I feel like I need to highlight this before we jump into a screenwriting process. In my experience, poetry is almost unintentional. Almost everything I've written uh, that could be considered poetry comes almost despite my intentions. I wouldn't go as far as saying it's automatic, but whether it's an image, a feeling, or an experience, triggers the desire to express that. And when it comes out, it usually isn't metered. It isn't, uh, there is no rhyme or music in it by intention. When I discover that th somehow there is a rhythm to it, and that there is internal music, and that the pictures are worth my own attention, then I stay with it and wait for it to finish. And in that process, my job is to note down what is happening. I'm not the agent that is creating, I feel. Screenwriting, on the other hand, is almost entirely the opposite. Screenwriting starts with a purpose before the thought or the feeling, at least in the reality of uh, uh, professional screenwriting or doing it as a job. Most of screenwriting is an assignment where hopefully someone likes your previous work enough to ask you to do something. Rarely is it an idea that turns into a screenplay, that turns into a film. And somehow this has gotten a name, you know, independent filmmaking or art house films, or I would break screenplays or screenwriting down into uh, tens, if not hundreds of uh, approaches. Now, I was lucky enough to experience multiple uh, uh, of those approaches. And the process 
let's stick close to poetry and then we can go far away. The process of writing uh, a screenplay comes from either a picture in the mind, a feeling, or a theme, something you believe deeply that needs to be communicated in that medium. So it needs to use words, it needs to use pictures, it needs to use sound and music. It needs to be cut together as a montage. It needs to have a duration. Another difference is, for me at least, poetry doesn't need an audience, where screenplays are completely worthless without an audience. So had I written a poem now in this little book and closed it forever and no one ever hears it, that's a complete poem. That's a real thing that exists, whether or not it's heard. If it is heard and I successfully express it, all the better. With a film, or rather a screenplay, in the most basic form, all a screenplay is, is a skeleton, kind of an architectural drawing for a future thing to exist. It's an invitation to collaborate on a work. Rarely is the screenplay a finished work of art in itself. Otherwise, it would be a novel or a story. A screenplay exists to become a visual medium. So now we can go into idea and process. So when I have an idea for a film, I start with, if I can, the theme, if I know exactly what I want to say, theme. Sometimes it's a picture, it's an image. And that image contains within it some dynamic form, a force, that needs time to justify this image. It's not enough to love this image or to love a certain line of dialogue. It must have a reason. It must have a purpose. So the process then becomes who is in this image, which means characters. The character has within them as much as a human, a real human does. They have wants and needs, they have desires, they have flaws, and they have restrictions and circumstances in their life. Discovering those is definitely part of the process. Now, nothing I'm saying is, uh, is fixed. It's all malleable, it's all modular, the steps can be reversed or done in pieces and then gel together. So ideally what I would do is completely get to know this character. This character can, can be the protagonist. It can be down the line through the process uh, of discovery, the antagonist rather than the main hero of the story. Or it can be someone in the life of the character that leads us to this final image. Once the character is complete, then 
the writer should be able to put them in absolutely any situation and have a story happen. But story requires us to start and to end. And in between the start and the end is all the fun stuff, all the games and all the interesting things that we want to happen. So now we have a story. Now we have kind of a character who has a desire, who has a need inside them, whether they know this need or not, but they have a want. The want is what moves them. A character that doesn't move and doesn't want anything is not interesting. Is It's a shame to ask for people's attention for a character that wants nothing. So once we know their wants and needs, we can make it as difficult as possible for them to attain this want by placing real or artificial barriers between them and their want. Now this process is, is formalized uh, tens of times in many books, but the, the real essence of it is arriving at the end. In a story, if we don't have change, we have nothing. Now change can occur in the world around the character or within the character, him or herself. Change is what makes a story successful. The character might discover that they have to change in order to reach the end. They might discover that they have to change the world for them to reach the end. In any story or in film? Are you talking any story needs a character change or it's required more in film? I'm going to try and be humble uh, and say there's no every for anything. And if there is, I don't know it. What I know is what I've experienced and enjoyed. Few stories where no change happens are successful. And we can go for the next 15 minutes trying to measure success, right? Hmm. Uh, let's say engaging or respect the attention of the reader or the watcher. Film, in essence, can exist without story. There are numerous films that are a series of images with sound or without that create a feeling inside. Just like poetry does. Film, I would say, doesn't require story. But traditionally, and with most films, there is story. Now, the character exists. They have wants or needs. They have obstacles in their life. They discover they have to change or change the world. Once all these elements are fulfilled, we know what the end is. Some writers prefer to start without knowing the end at all and discover as they write. The rest of it, all the rest of it, is building the texture of the world, the tone of the script, and dialogue. This all comes to serve the theme which is illustrated by what the character wants or needs. Yeah, and I think going back to detail, I believe it's, you said texture. We need to build the texture of a world. 
um, and I'm as you're speaking I'm just imagining how much detail I would need in my head to imagine a whole world let alone a character um, that is inspired by someone maybe or a totally made up character that I create um, I'm actually reading um, uh, Frankenstein like I started it uh, three days ago and Mary Shelley was 18 when she wrote it and I was thinking how is an 18 year old um, how was she able to create something that resonated with the world this much and engaged so many images cartoons and it speaks to adults and children and it can be scary but it can also be comical uh, Frankenstein's monster that is and all I'm focusing on as I'm reading is how Mary Shelley was able to create that character that is made up of different human parts uh, and actually make us feel compassionate with that character, but also that character can scare us. But, but I think it was the compassion that also uh, is a strange feeling when you are compassionate with a, with, with a monster, with what is called Frankenstein's monster. But I keep thinking it is detail. It is detail to human psychology. It is detail to how characters are different elements of different people put together. And that's exactly what Frankenstein's monster is, different parts of different people put together. I think detail is essential in, in this process. And, and also going back to another point you said, uh, you said it's, poetry is almost unintentional. And I, uh, I really understand that very, very much. And we spoke about it in the previous episode as well with Wael Asayikh. This sudden urge to something comes out of you almost unintentionally. And I'm not sure how much detail is, I mean, at least when I speak about myself, I don't think I pay attention to this much detail when I write poetry. And I think this is the only medium I, I express myself in till now. I'm, I'm trying different things. But yes, uh, this was just a point that I uh, thought about. So you about. said, make us feel. Who? When did right? I say that? Uh, she was able to make us ah, feel. Yes. Right? <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's great. <laughs> if, if a story can't make us feel anything, then what's the point? right it's it's just a collection of information it might as well be a catalog or a manual it might as well be a religious text it might as well be a guide right the difference between those things and stories is the use of narrative to make us feel detail is the skin of the story and the screenplay is the skeleton when i look at poems I don't see that. I see the poem as more of a spirit, right? It's, there are certainly poems with rigid structure that have a skeleton and embellishment and a skin and so on. There are poets who write in drafts. Uh, I'm not dismissing that, but I don't do that, so I can't speak about it nor am I academically taught, so I can't speak about that. 
but feeling is at the core, right? Feeling is the thing that gives the purpose to create in the first place. Whether it's a feeling we have that we want to share or a feeling we want to describe or a feeling that we want to have that we don't know. You said you don't think about detail when you are writing. That's amazing because the act of writing while it's happening should be, uh, I shouldn't say should be, ideally for me, the act of writing feels automatic. So all the work has been done before the writing happens. And this applies to the screenplay, to the poem, and to all other forms of writing that I've done. The work happens when we're daydreaming. The work happens when we are living and perceiving. The writing is an execution of the things that are already within us. The difference with the screenplay is the final purpose, the fact that it's an invitation to collaborate. Now, every word and every syllable in a poem is achieving something. In a screenplay, you're writing words for the characters, you're writing things for the location manager, you're writing things for the wardrobe stylist, you're writing for an audience of a hundred or more who have to create these things in physical space to serve the image and to serve the film. You're writing for the musician who will compose the track. You're writing for the actor who has to understand intention and subtext. And all this becomes quite different when it's a personal idea, a passion project that will hopefully turn into a finished film. Let's take the extreme example on the other end of the spectrum as to illustrate all these points. Let's take an assignment. Uh, let's say you're hired as a screenwriter to execute someone else's idea. So they come to you with a story. Let's make it even worse. They don't come to you with a story. They come to you with uh, a marketing requirement. So this studio, this fictional studio that we have, for example, they've already made two horror films. They've made a teenage film and they're looking for a disaster film to fulfill their summer release requirements. They're going to hire a writer to do that. Their pitch to the writer might be as simple as we know this action movie star is going to play the lead role. We know that we're going to shoot in Morocco, Abu Dhabi and LA. And we know it needs to be less than two hours, but more than an hour and a half. So now you have these fixed requirements that within you have to create the story. So in building the character, knowing who's going to be cast for it already ticks a lot of boxes. Knowing their range lets you know how much you can write for them. Knowing the locations takes a lot of finding the texture of the world out of the equation. And then it becomes kind of a, a formulaic thing uh, 
where your duty is still to make people feel something. So that's an assignment kind of writing versus an idea, a passion project that comes from within that then you have to do a process of discovery of why do I love this? Oh, it's the theme. It's talking about the, the theme that I love so much that I can't stop thinking about. How best to illustrate this? To create a character probably as similar to me as possible. Exaggerating my flaws to an extent where I can even therapeutically deal with a situation that I've had in my own life where I come out on top. In discovering this, I might realize something new about myself. This is not what I actually want. The character did come out on top in the story, but still the void exists. And then you've discovered something about yourself, you've discovered something about the story, and you've discovered what your true need is. And that's where, uh, for me, narrative and story becomes an ingrained part of how I perceive things. This was an unintentional consequence of studying story. We all think of ourselves as protagonists of our stories. We are the hero. We come up against antagonists in our life. So we must overcome. We enjoy wallowing in our misery when the misery comes because we imagine this is the scene where it's raining outside, our head is up at the window, the perfect song is playing. But what we can also recognize is that every single person is a protagonist. There are no side characters in life. We're all equally rich within. So that's, that's the, the, the protagonist and their want and need and theme. So when you zoom out like this, there are themes bigger than our own that exist. And whether we can employ these or not is, is a whole separate issue. But as protagonists, we are carrying these themes with us wherever we go. Sometimes these themes are compulsions. Sometimes they are true beliefs. And other times there are things we need to see our therapist about. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, as you were speaking about how we are all protag protagonists, I remembered um, a theater director that I worked with who is trying to focus on all the characters in most of our stories. The many stories we know, Gilgamesh, Aladdin, he, he finds uh, even Shakespearean uh, stories. He finds all these stories and then focuses on people who are not the hero, the helper of the hero, the, the, the people in the, on the margin. And he makes all these people the protagonists of the work he's, he's working on. Um, I'm not going to say more because I don't think this uh, is public yet. <laughs> Uh, but he told me about it, and this is what I was thinking about. Um, and I hope no one steals this idea. And oh, Jamil, you might have to remove this part, uh, or not. But it's um, but it's true. We are all protagonists of um, of our stories, and I think 
the work that needs to be done is there is a there's a hero story that is now quite trite and very used the hero um, and many images are fixed and cheesy um, if I may and I think the work that needs to be done is to shift that is to is to change some narratives because there are some narratives that are overpowering and I can say in most media not just in film I can read something to you. Um, I picked two poems for today, not yours, poems of my choice, and they can inspire something that you want to read after. Shall we do that? Okay, I like that too. This poem is called Prayer, and it is by poet Mary Howe. Every day I want to speak with you and every day something more important calls for my attention. The drugstore, the beauty products, the luggage I need to buy for the trip. Even now I can hardly sit here among the, f the falling piles of paper and clothing. The garbage trucks outside already screeching and banging. The mystics say you are as close as my own breath. Why do I flee from you? My days and nights pour through me like complaints and become a story I forgot to tell. Help me. Even as I write these words, I am planning to rise from the chair as soon as I finish this sentence. That's prayer by Mary Howe. Well, she said something that we literally all experience. Absolutely. <laughs> so that sliver of truth then acts like a thread that goes through each of our clots, if our clots were our lives. And now you and I and everyone who heard this shares something new that perhaps we hadn't before. And even as a poem, there is a story in this poem. She has a desire, and there are obstacles to her desire. She recognizes her flaw while telling this story. The end may not arrive, probably because she's still alive. Hmm. And to many of us, as protagonists in our life, we have this imaginary end that occurs before death. Few of us are lucky to reach in capital letters at the end of the screen, the end, before we pass. Her desire is a universal one, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I hope too. It's something uh -huh. that without question I experience on a daily basis multiple times. And even in, in sacred texts 
what she said is mentioned. And the mystics don't have to say as close as my breath. Almost every text that deals with this alludes to it. Within this, thematically, I'm trying to keep things tied between poetry and screenplays. Go for it. Thematically, it is a, an undeniable truth. And this struggle of uh, our attention as a pendulum exists in each and every single person, even the most attuned teacher of Zen Buddhism who spends the bulk of his life with a handle on his attention, grabbing it and fixing it down, is still dealing with this. I had a conversation once with a man who I'm happy to call a teacher. My question to him was specifically about attention and distraction. I want to speak to you, but the trucks are outside and I want to get up off my chair. And we're called by the distractions of the dunya, of the, the physical world we are in now, from the absolute truth, from the thing we want to believe, from the thing we believe and we forget. My question to him was, is the goal to slow down this pendulum? Because surely stopping it is impossible. His answer was, no, it's not impossible. The goal is absolutely to stop the pendulum from swinging. To stop or slow it down? Stop it entirely. Hmm. This is what surprised me. I had already come to this with the assumption that the goal is slowing it down, right? But when he told me the goal is to stop it, it changed my entire perspective. And rather than spend too much time in abstraction, this pendulum is just an image to help us think. And w what it swings between is multiple things. Uh, Let's imagine inside you are thousands of pendulums. Each one swings at a different rate. One is going tuck, 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 tuck. The other is going tuck, tuck. And there is one that takes maybe an entire lifetime to swing. What are they swinging from and to? The simplest example would be our thoughts of the past, things that have happened, Maybe our regrets. Maybe I should have done. I could have. And anxieties about what is to come. The future and what it holds. And what should I do? And how do I prepare? As it swings between past and future, it passes the point of the present. That doesn't mean we are never in the present. That means we are almost guests. And the present is only a threshold between our thoughts of things past and things to come. I had thought 
that I resist the pendulum and push it back in the opposite way. When the goal can be holding it in place. Other than past and present, we all have swings between hyper highs of unbounded joy and deep lows of wallowing misery. The pendulum swings between both, maybe outside our control, maybe even at a rate that is not fixed, that sometimes it goes quickly between both and other times it takes a few weeks to transfer. The distractions that we allow take our hands off this pendulum and it goes back to swinging. Just as every character in a story arrives at a fork in the road and a choice that they must make, the audience has the privilege of knowing what is the right choice for this character and what is the wrong choice. Either one the character takes is kind of irrelevant. They can take the wrong choice and the story is a tragedy. They can take the right choice and we have a happily ever after. In a story, there are clear moments like this. Multiple forks in the road that in each act, the character deals with one or more of them. If they take the right choice, we cheer them on. If they take the wrong one, we yell at the screen and hope that they learn from this wrong choice and make the right one the next time. However, not only are we not protagonists in our own stories and everybody else is a side character, in our lives, these choices are not so clear. It's not a super clear fork in the road with right and wrong on the left and the right. Black or white doors that we have to guess which one we have to walk through. The choices are so small and so frequent that it is almost impossible to consciously make each and every one of them. So we add weight to certain choices and remove weight from others. So now we're making value decisions. Now we're distracted. When in fact, it is attainable and possible to know. One of those choices is to accept a belief that you hold rather than wrestle the belief. I'm describing something that as I am saying, I'm capable of forgetting, just like she said. Mm. As I'm saying this sentence, I'm gonna get out of this chair. As I'm telling you what I believe is the truth, I'm beginning to forget. So, so how do you stop the pendulum, according to your teacher? His methods are quite simple, deceptively so. It is relying on breath as a physical activity to get your handle on thought. Uh, I think I summarized maybe uh, 
a hundred different disciplines using this. And that's what I like about him and that's why he is a teacher. Is that we don't need to use fancy words and we don't need to use complicated images to uh, communicate this very basic thing, which is most of our thoughts will distract us from the things that we inherently know. And when we inherently know them, these are the beliefs that mm. guide us. There is an ideal that we build. And because it is an ideal, we accept that it might be unattainable. And do you think the world is more and more trying to distract us? Do you think there is an intentional uh, need to distract? Or is it an, an intrinsic um, uh, tendency? Is this something... So is Mary, the speaker in Mary's poem, is she distracted because that's how the world is? Or is she distracted because the world is... It's very hard to resist these distractions... Um, or is she is it easy for her to stop being distracted um, and just what do you do you think the world I mean it's very difficult not to think of um, you know billboards and flashing lights and so you know the, the choices we have to you know to consume the many many ways we we are, you know, marketed uh, and, and sold products and things to do. Um, and then, of course, all our screens that are designed to take our attentions and our attention is valuable and we know that, yet we find ourselves um, on the Internet. We don't really know why. We find ourselves um, on our phones and we don't know why we're, you know... Do you think there's an intentional... Um, you know, force that is distracting us um, and then maybe do you think poetry can be an antidote to that because we have been talking about attention since we started and I really like that very much um, is it really just about taking a moment and saying Rexi, focus on what's around this moment now and this is the poem and if you are intentionally planning to write a, a, a script this will be important to look around you in that moment and say stop it the, the, there are unnecessary wants and desires right now there are unnecessary swings from past to future all the time and I recognize this very very much and I think so many of our listeners will is it really just about taking a moment and saying, shh, uh, and that's when things will come out? Because people struggle to write. People, not, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, we want to write, we can't, we don't know how. Um, and is it that? Can I simply say, just regzu, on the moment, focus on the things around you. And that's how you'll write, focus on the things inside you. And then the inside and the outside become one thing. In my view, it's always best to retain agency. I don't know if there's a force out there intentionally distracting us from the truth in abstract terms. In more specific terms, it's undeniable that due 
to the structure of um, the capitalist system that we live within is that there are agents that will benefit from retaining our attention. With these two things in mind, keep agency. Whether or not there is this force, whether or not it's in our nature to be distracted or an agent is distracting us, retain the agency. Assume that you have absolute control over that. I think starting there is a more powerful place because we are powerful. We are infinitely powerful. We'll go to how to write in a bit, but before doing anything, because writing is, a, is an act, uh, it's, it's something that we are doing, we can talk a little bit about how to be. Just being itself is a weird experience. And every single day, I wonder how not everybody is freaking out that we exist. Just in the first place, as a very basic thing. It's, it's almost one of my first thoughts every single day is, ah, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> this is crazy. And slowly I begin to remember what it means to perceive and do and be and all these things. Reset, grab the pendulum again. Okay, hold it in place. Feel the forces pushing and pulling. Great, fantastic. Now what? Right back to breathing. The pure essential thing that we have to do, consume oxygen for metabolism. Doing that purposely, not automatically, is step one for me to remember how to be, okay? I have agency over my diaphragm and lungs. Perfect. Next. Almost like a checklist. Yeah, but then even if you're not thinking about breathing, you're, you still are. And that's the beauty of... I, and I think that's why mm. breathing is a is a very mindful practice uh, mm. and is many teachers always say focus on breathing because it's it's the balance between I'm already breathing mm. but then if I say hey focus on it I can go like mm. but I'm already breathing what you've done in this moment is recognized that you have agency over one of the most basic things that you forget. Once you remember that you have agency over such a basic thing, now you can step up a little bit and go to another. Agency over breath can translate to agency over thought. We have infinite number of impulses and compulsions that move us from the basic needs of the body to evacuate what's in it, to imbibe things that will keep us alive and so on. We are able to do these things automatically and rely on instinct for a lot of these. It's a little bit more powerful 
if we do these things with intention and with agency. That's one step up from breath. Before we sit down to write, that's, that's such a vague idea, right? I want to sit down and write. Okay, awesome. What? Why? Grab, grab that agency and recognize what it is that is moving you to express. Knowing what you want to express is a power. There is a way if we want to answer the people who are asking, how do I write? There is a way where you don't have to know anything at all, zero. And it's a magical way that requires nothing more than 20 minutes a day. It's one of the scariest things in the beginning. And then it becomes a habit that you can't stop. I'll give an example before uh, I illustrate the whole idea. I didn't floss before. I used to think it's excessive. It's a habit I will never pick up. It's a thing I don't want to ever do. And then I did it the first time, uh, second time. Now, a few years later, if I don't do it, I feel like I missed something quite important. And I've been in a situation where we're out climbing mountains. There is no floss. I can't do it. And I actually uh, miss it somehow. How does that translate to writing? Take, take the empty page, whether it's a physical page in front of you or if you're using a computer or even the notes on your phone, open it up and without thinking, use the same agency, the same kind of thought where now I will inhale, now I will exhale, now I will type and type anything, even if it's gibberish. One, two, three, four, A, B, jig, 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 jig. Type that. Keep going. Because once your fingers are moving, a thought will come to you that needs to be written. Even if that thought is, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. I feel stupid. This is quite silly. Hmm. Who will read this? I'm going to delete this when I'm done. So the gibberish turned into words. These words are your internal monologue. Once you've purged your internal monologue of thoughts that are preoccupied with the act that you are doing, you're revealing layer after layer more complexity in your own internal monologue. And our inner lives are infinitely rich. If your first experience is entirely purging, great, save it, put the date, move on, that's your 20 minutes. The next day, start again, even if it comes out the same. Guess what? You've been writing for two days. No one can 
point at this page and say it has no value. It brought you a step closer to having agency over your fingers and your thoughts. And I bet by the third day, you're not going to stop in 20 minutes. You're going to be thinking about what you're going to do the next day in those 20 minutes. You're probably going to take notes so that when the 20 minutes comes, you have something that you consider valuable to write. Now, please note that in this entire process, we didn't choose a medium. We didn't say, I'm going to sit down to write a screenplay. We didn't say, I'm going to sit down to write a poem. We didn't pick a language. Nothing. As few choices as you can to make the act of writing normalized, not scary, simple, a habit like flossing, something that needs to be done. Now, later on, how artful you become with this is entirely your call. And I genuinely believe writing without choosing a medium. This is a craft. This is something that you get better at. Even if your vocabulary is limited. Even if you know only a hundred words. How to arrange these hundred words to communicate more and more complex things and to express unbounded is the goal. If you want to write just to write, this is perfect. No one is going to stop you after 20 minutes. You can do an hour, you can do two, you can do your whole day if you're lucky enough to have that much time. Yeah, and attention. Mm. Right, if our listeners want to find you, uh, find your films, your work, where do they go, what do they look for, uh, do you want them to find you? <laughs> N-I-D-A-L Nidal M-O-R-R-A Murra I think uh, I'm lucky enough that uh, things come up on Google I don't have a website I don't use social media for my work and I think I can honestly share a reason for that I don't think I've created something that I would push out to the world. I've spent the last maybe 15 years crafting, right? Writing, uh, doing assignments, and uh, certain things pour out of me. Yes, that's the, the poetry. I allow it to come. I don't force it out. I don't feel like I need to share it. I don't feel like uh, I want to raise it or give it its own life yet. Part of it is because I have immeasurable self-doubt and that pendulum swings between absolute grandiosity and egomania and <laughs> crippling, paralyzing fear and self-doubt. So as I struggle to 
pull the pendulum in the center and hold it still, I execute uh, assignments. I work with a lot of uh, beautiful directors. I write screenplays for them. Uh, I write screenplays as assignments. Uh, and I spend a lot of my time not thinking and drawing vertical lines parallel next to each other as uh, as a practice, as a form of um, being in control of uh, my agency, basically. Uh, there are a couple of ongoing things that I'm writing daily. Once I get uh, decision fatigue, working on one of them, I take a little break and move on to the next. Uh, one of them is a, a screenplay that I would very much like to direct myself. It's about a Levantine family. The protagonist is the father. It's semi-autobiographical, an exaggeration of my home life centered around the father accepting that his children are not the models that he tried to raise. This is all wrapped up with his ideas of identity, what it means to be a Palestinian man living outside of Palestine and what that means to his kids. He's a slightly conservative man and because of uh, how they grew up and what they were, uh, the way they were educated, they're not, they don't match the image that he had in his mind of what a perfect family is. So that's, uh, I would say, my uh, current uh, project when it comes to film. And there's uh, a book called, for now, relevant history it's vignettes of memories that have automatically returned to me uh, starting at around age two until very recently and this came out of uh, therapy actually while I was speaking to my uh, therapist the salt story came up and she wondered how I could remember vividly something from so far back where usually memories are not created or retained. So she encouraged me to intentionally access uh, in order for her to create uh, a better picture of uh, my experiences and what has led to all the weird things that I feel now. So while doing that as homework for therapy, it came out in a nice way. Mm. So I'm a few chapters into this. Did you send me uh, some of them? Uh, I think one. Is it the one in Books front of in me? Books in a library. No, I was thinking about the one that I have in front of me. And maybe you can share it with our listeners. Um, What's the title? Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, some. That is one of them, right? This is um, 
that's not uh, one of them. The, the ones I'm describing are a couple of pages long each, a few hundred words each, and they go into extreme detail uh, uh, about, um, I don't want to say traumatic things, but uh, memories that have a lot of weight attached to them. This is a weightless memory. It's an untitled piece, and I, dare I say, this is a poem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I will read this. I, I don't date it by year. It says 19th of November. I don't remember of what year. <laughs> when I was a primary school student, I would get very excited when the teachers would run out of chalk. I would volunteer to go fetch a new pack. On my way back to class, I would open the little box and admire the perfect, untempered chalk sticks, neatly arranged. They almost had no powder on them. I miss that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, everything I read makes me go back to the detail thing, and I love that. And I think I'm very happy this was the overarching um in my head at least i felt that we <laughs> we kept talking about uh, i wrote i wrote the, i wrote it on my notebook and i i i kind of guessed we would talk about this because this is what i felt um and this is what i wanted to talk to you about but so it was a mix of being intentional and not mm. uh, and i like that um we ended up doing this um i want to end um this episode with um, another poem, and maybe we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, it, it's by poet Louise Gluck. She's one of my favorite poets, and she's written a collection focusing only on plants, specific species of plants, but relating them to um, human traits or something like that, and I'll read it, and then we, we, you'll tell me what you think and how it made you feel. This one's called Lamium, and I had to look this up, but Lamium is a species of plants. I think there are like 40 or 50 different ones. Um, this is how you live when you have a cold heart, as I do in the shadows, trailing over cool rock, under the great maple trees. The sun hardly touches me. Sometimes I see it in early spring, rising very far away. Then leaves grow over it, completely hiding it. I feel it, glinting through the leaves, erratic like someone hitting the side of a glass with a metal spoon. Living things don't all require light in the same degree. Some of us make our own light, a silver leaf, like a path no one can use, a shallow lake of silver in the darkness under the great maples. But you know this already. You and all, you and the others who think you live for truth and by extension, love all that is cold. And what I love about this is that I don't know if she's talking about me or the plant. <laughs> I'm always like, what is she talking about? And I love that. And I, 
and I tell myself, I should read about Lamium because if I do, I'll probably understand this poem better. But the amount of attention, the amount of knowledge of plants and of having a cold, liking everything that's cold, having a cold heart, living in the shadows. And it's a mix of plant and living, just living things. And then the beautiful line that I love very much is um, living things don't all require light in the same degree. Um, we can go back to your apartment and talk about that since there's sunlight in there. But, um, but she says living things. And she makes me, she confirms that it's not just about Lamium, it's probably about me as well, about humans. And I love that. And I think uh, this collection is really worthy of uh, being explored, but also um, of loving, uh, of, of knowing. Like it requires knowledge about plants, not necessarily, but I feel I want to know about Lamium um, to know, to understand what Louise Gluck is saying here. Because, yeah, she gives us information, right? Uh, there are maple trees, so we kind of expect where this lamium grows. Uh, it trails over cool rock. So probably lamium grows somewhere where there's cool rock under great maple trees. The sun hardly touches me. So this is a plant that doesn't require much sun. So she is telling us scientific information about lamium, but then, surprise, but you know this already. You and the others who think you live for truth and by extension love all that is cold. And I'm like, oh my God. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I think this is... Um, did you know Louise Gluck? You know this already. <laughs> <laughs> this is what brings it together for me. One of my beliefs is sounds contradictory nobody knows anything okay and we can certainly spend a long time talking about what knowing means no one knows anything for certainty uh, with with unshakable conviction measurements are fluid uh, we can go into quantum worlds and things that are and aren't. But we know this already. We know everything we need to know already. I feel like everything I've known or learned, I had known. Everything about this plant feels familiar. As if I had been it, as if I had been told. And within us, I should speak for myself maybe, within me, there is enough information to fill petabytes of data. Within each cell, there's the nucleus, that contains the entire screenplay mm -hmm. of what the film of our body needs to be. This is multiplied over every cell. Within our basic reptilian brain, 
is all the systems that automatically control, like we said earlier, breathing, that move our GI tract without our intention. We know to be afraid of certain patterns on animals in nature. Even children who are not taught if they hear a roar of a tiger, they experience a kind of shivering, I don't remember the technical name for it, that is unintentional, with no agency. There's an idea in Arabic that I don't know, unfortunately, how to translate into English, called fitra. These are things that we inherently know. And it's a specific thing that we inherently know. It is bigger than instinct. It's bigger than conscious thought. Intuition? Um, if you don't mind or looking intrinsic. for m in, maybe... In, in, like instinct or mm. something that's intrinsic. Knowledge within. Yeah. Knowledge within. Uh, conscious or not. You know this already uh, in this poem brought it all together for me in a way that we can be distracted by thoughts and things we learn and how-tos and a process and differences between and so on. Ultimately, at the core of it, it is simply one thing, right? We are capable of aligning this one thing with almost no effort by releasing ourselves from the push and pull and the desires too. Doing that allows unbounded writing, unbounded creation, freedom from past and future, freedom from fears and desires, and so on. And hopefully freedom from crippling self-doubt. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. Definitely. Right. Um, I want to end the episode. Um, thank you for being with us at the studio. Uh, I'm Farah Shamma. And again, thank you to Jamil Adas. And thank you to Farah Sharif, um, who took pictures of today. And thank you to you, our listeners. Um, I hope you stick with us. We'll be having uh, more and more episodes on the Poetry Hood podcast. Shukran. Thank you.